Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I say that because this may be the first one you've watched, although most viewers have watched many. But if it is your first, then feel free to go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and check out the past interviews menu where you'll find 320-something previous ones all categorized in various ways. Uh, you'll also see a donate button there on the site, which we very much appreciate people clicking on if they feel moved to do so because it supports this whole project and enables us to keep it going. My guest today is John Aston. John is the author of three collections of poetic and prose reflections on the non-dual nature of reality, Too Intimate for Words, This is Always Enough, and Searching for Rain in a Monsoon. He is presently at work on a new book, It's Not What You Think It Is, Reflections on the Inconceivable Nature of Reality. Along with his writing and teaching, John is also a singer, songwriter, and recording artist who since 1987 has produced seven CDs of original spiritual contemplative music, including his most recent release, What We've Always Been. So John is a musician, and uh, he sings and plays guitar, and, in the, and he's released a number of CDs of his songs. So in the course of this conversation, we may segue into a song, which we'll splice in later on in post-production, so that we won't be introducing it, but we'll just cut to a song probably that pertains to uh, something we've just been talking about. So if we do that, don't be surprised. Enjoy the song, and then our conversation will continue. Thanks. In addition to his writing and music, John also holds a PhD in health psychology and is an internationally acclaimed scholar in the field of mind-body medicine. His research focusing on the applications of meditative contemplative practices in psychology and healthcare. And John's website is johnaston.com, A-S-T-I-N. So John, you're kind of a renaissance man. That's probably a good way to put it. Yeah, finger in I've, many uh, pies. I'm a, I'm a, yes, I'm a dabbler. Yeah, but not a dilettante. Hopefully not, but <laughs> maybe sometimes. Yeah, for the non-English speaking viewers, a dilettante means a superficial dabbler, but John's a deep dabbler. Sounds good. Um, I seem to have a lot of diverse interests, uh, even if they're seem connected within myself so uh yeah. keeps life interesting yeah it does i'm kind of like that too although i'm sort of fanatical about this spiritual stuff i'm kind of with you there so. yeah that's the hub of the wheel so let's cover it all john um usually it's good to start with some kind of chronology you know of how you first got interested in, in spirituality and what what are some of your major milestones and you think that might be a good place to start sure happy okay. to say a little bit about that. Raised very non-religiously, uh, thought of myself as an atheist, as a teenager, and um, remember getting in arguments with my brother at the time, who had become a born-again Christian. Oh, He's my younger brother, although he, he didn't end up remaining in that for mm -hmm. more than a couple of years, but I felt pretty convinced that just had kind of a materialistic view of life, and the notions of God seemed to not answer the question. I remember when getting in some of these arguments with believers and, and they would talk about, well, you know, God created everything. And my, my uh, response was often, well, what created God? Somehow that <laughs> it was like a cop-out answer somehow. Mm -hmm. so, in some respects, I sort of still feel the same way, but uh, it doesn't actually really answer the question. Where did it all begin? So yeah, I was, uh, went to college at Berkeley initially and um, wanted to change the world. I was very politically active and yeah, that was really my focus. And uh, a very life-altering conversation happened with a friend who, a fellow political activist, and we were sitting outside, and I had become 
disenchanted with uh, what I was observing in a lot of the political activism, which felt like people sort of not walking the talk in the sense of speaking a lot about harmony and connection and love and healing the world. But there was a lot of anger and a lot of vitriol and a lot of posturing. And I, I, something was like not connecting for me there. And I, I felt sort of disenchanted with that. So I was speaking with my friend and she said, well, John, they don't understand. Most people don't understand something very fundamental, which is the real transformation happens within ourselves. And, and I never really thought of that ever in my 19 years of life. And it, that one little phrase sort of went off like a time bomb mm. in my head. I think it played a major role in kind of setting me on this journey of uh, self-exploration, self-discovery. And I had a good friend who we've had this very kind of parallel journey um, we started having conversations and sort of tracking one another's experiences and investigations and both kind of at the same time happened upon Eastern religions and meditation and really I, I didn't seek any of that out. It was like it just sort of came in, into my field and, uh, and I got very interested and passionate about, about it and uh, my kind of major introduction into that whole world was Yogananda's teachings. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, just before we get off the activism thing, you know, you're probably aware of this, but these days, spiritual activism is becoming a sort of a buzzword. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are people like Andrew Harvey and Adam Bucko and, and others who are kind of putting their money where their mouth is in terms of uh, feeling like their spirituality should be applied in some kind of meaningful mm -hmm. way in the world. And I was a little older than you, I think, and, uh, you know, but back in the day, I late 60s, early 70s, I was meditating and, and there were these activists and, you know, marching on against the Vietnam War and stuff. And, and I perceived what you perceive, which was there, there's a lot of anger and egotism and stuff. And I thought, mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to create world peace. They, they need to sort of become peaceful within themselves. But I'm sure they were thinking of me if they were aware of me at all. He's not going to accomplish anything sitting on his butt. You know? <laughs> right, right. But these days, you know, there are people who are sort of feeling like you really need to have both in order for it to be effective. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It, I think particularly if you're drawn to being much more kind of politically, kind of socially engaged in those, those kinds of areas. So, I, yeah, I got introduced to, to Yogananda's teachings and um, was just completely enamored with the whole world of yoga and, and meditation, and I just dove head first. I became a student of, of his. You know, he had, of course, passed on, but really, really a serious student and... It became such a focus and, I guess, obsession in a sense, meditating hours every day that I felt inside myself that I, oh, I dropped out of college, by the way, mm -hmm. at this point, to pursue these other interests, which I felt <clears throat> were not getting fed in university studies. Did you time, find that I, Yogananda's I, meditation as you were practicing it was gratifying enough as to be able to absorb your, your attention for hours at a time? It sounds like you must have really been getting into it, because if you weren't, it wouldn't have been hard to sit there that long. Uh, it was very hard to sit there that was it? long. We'll touch on it probably in other ways too, but I, in some respects I didn't really care for meditation that much. Mm -hmm. Even though I, I was finding benefits from it, I would have kind of periodic moments of what I would call sort of breakthrough understandings and a sense of sort of peace and bliss. But most of the time it was pretty difficult and I struggled with concentration. Even when I took up other practices later on that had a kind of a concentration, mind control sort of element to them. I, I kept doing them, uh, I think, as much out of some sense that I had to do this in order to realize what I wanted to realize more than, wow, I really love this. I can't wait for the next meditation. <laughs> it was rarely 
I have friends who are like that. They can't wait to go and sit for 12 hours a day, and I'm, I'm not one of those people. I'm kind of uh, like that, but it's not 12. <laughs> That's a little too long. Right. right. I have done that, but uh, these days yeah. it's more like less than that. At that time, I, uh, I thought that's all I wanted was that, and it was very, felt very single-pointed, and I toyed very seriously with becoming a monk in, within his order. I thought I had lost all desire for anything else, for relationship, for children, for sex, the whole nine yards. And that turned out to not really be the case. It was revealed shortly thereafter <laughs> uh, when I decided not to become a monk. Fell in love like very quickly after that. I was like, oh, I guess I'm not done with, with that uh, yeah. very human thing. I stayed involved with Yogananda's teachings. I ended up leaving that whole world. You know, the whole question of how I was, a, how I stepped away from different teachings that I became involved with is kind of a whole thing unto itself. Suffice it to say that I experienced an aspect of the, the yoga tradition as it was taught within his tradition, his teaching, that felt somewhat repressive, somewhat suppressive of our humanness. This is very much, and you're familiar with the yoga traditions. Mm-hmm. I heard it as very much a kind of the lower chakras, the lower energies, these very human longings and desires are somehow nothing short of evil <laughs> and need to be risen above and uh, transcended. And at first I was attracted to that and then I started to feel something felt not quite integrated about that. And uh, I also wanted to teach meditation because I, I thought it was beneficial and I was as much as I may have struggled with it, I also saw the value of it. And I couldn't do that within the context of his teaching. So I ended up gravitating towards more of a mindfulness kind of Buddhist orientation. And I was also becoming aware at the same time, having returned to school and wanting to study meditation, since that's what I was most interested in, that uh, some of these mindfulness practices were starting to garner a lot of attention among researchers. And that all kind of coincided with my and then eventually going to graduate school and, and uh, starting to, to do research on, on meditation at that time. I also felt something within that kind of Buddhist Vipassana mindfulness tradition that felt much more embracing of the whole of us, the whole thing, all of our humanness and not sort of leaving any of it to the side. So that was very attractive to me. It felt truer somehow. And so I continued to be pretty devoted to meditation as I said, started studying it academically, doing research on it. You know, within, of course, all the contemplative traditions, there's this very strong non-dual theme. I mean, it's there. I saw it in Yogananda, particularly in some of his writings, but his path was also a very devotional one that, that had a strong kind of dualistic feel to it as well. But I always love that non-dual piece. But in some sense, I... Well, I clearly didn't completely get it experientially what that was all about. Ken Wilber had become kind of an intellectual mentor, and I got to know him and was one of the founders of his Integral Institute way back in the, in the 90s. And, and Ken, at the time, was speaking very highly of this, this guy, Andrew Cohen, and I'd never heard of him, but I really respected Ken a lot. So I said, let me just check this guy out. So I started reading some of his stuff, and... Something about it was very compelling, and I went on a retreat with him in 2000, and uh, that, that was a very sort of watershed moment for me in my own journey of maturation and uh, development. I, was a, I think it was a five-day retreat, and very early on, there was a, uh, it was actually a very cool kind of way that this happened. I, I don't know 
these things, you know, I don't think they can really be explained in rational terms necessarily how they come about, but you know, it's just good, good timing, I guess, <laughs> grace, whatever, some combination. And I was sitting in this meditation and he had shared something earlier about something that his teacher, Papaji, had said to him. And he said to Andrew, Andrew had come back to see him in India and he said to Andrew, I'm so happy that you found the friend that you'll never see. That's what Papaji said to Andrew. And I was like, wow, that's kind of a trippy thing to say. And so happy you, you found the friend you'll never see. And all of a sudden, like I understood what that meant, mm. that I could never see this because it was what was looking. It was just like something just kind of went off inside me and in that moment. And I recognized that, wow, I've been spending, God, now it had been, since I was 2000, I was like 40, early 40s. I'd been slogging away for years, you know, meditating and doing practices and chanting and trying to realize, you know, it's a familiar story that you've heard many of your guests share, I'm sure, in one form or another. But that discovery that I was what I had been looking for was, it was really shocking. It was like, it's hard to describe, but it was interesting. It had a very emotional impact at, at a certain level, which was the sense of this kind of bitter sweetness that I'd been or what I had been doing, I'd been like looking for so, so long, for so hard, you know, struggling, grasping, seeking for this. And all along, it was what I was. It was like, holy shit. It was mind blowing. Looking if, back now, do you yeah. feel like all that struggling and seeking was, in, was a waste of time? Or do you feel like somehow in a paradoxical way, it actually brought you to the point where you could see what had been there all along? Yeah. There's no way, of course, to know the answer to that. You know, I'm kind of inclined to see it the first way. But, yeah. You know, you talk to people who mm -hmm. meditated for 30 years, and then they all of a sudden have this awakening, and then they, they say, oh, you don't, you don't need to meditate, just be awakened or something. And I was thinking, no, nah, mm -hmm. man, it's, it had to do with what you've been doing for 30 years, you know, even though that right. takes a thorn to remove a thorn. <laughs> it might not make sense from your current perspective, but it had an effect. Yeah. Well, clearly, I mean, everything that we've ever experienced has shaped something about how we are now so yeah. so I can't even look back at anything even things I can now look at and go well that wasn't very wise you know that's all shaped me so I'm not going to question like somehow I was wasting my time because I don't believe that that being said I do think it's a very open question right now for me even within the whole kind of field of contemplative studies which is can you take people who are call them meditation naive who haven't been doing a lot of practice and training of, of awareness, if you will, mm -hmm. and introduce them more directly and more immediately to these things. And well, maybe you can. Are you familiar with Jeffrey Martin? You know what Jeffrey Martin is up yeah, to? Yeah, I know, I know Jeffrey. Yeah, he, he would probably concur with what you just said. Yeah. That's my sense is that my intuition is that, that at least for some people, there's going to be a natural openness there that doesn't require, you know, years and years and years of kind of banging their head against the wall. But yeah. I don't know, you know, yeah. it's... Uh, the ways in which people come to discover what they discover is there is no formula that I think that's just a myth. Yeah. Well, there's some people who aren't even looking for it. You know, they're just walking down the street or eating breakfast or something. And all of a yeah. sudden this big shift happens. And they think, what is this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, the, and I've been writing about this recently because it feels really, you know, my observations of myself and, and many other people, this feels very central. I see it as almost like a fundamental misunderstanding that we kind of continue to fall prey to or experience until it starts to kind of wear away and, and only try to describe it. So the event that happened on that particular retreat felt quite 
spectacular. It wasn't like a lot of, it wasn't showy in the sense of like phenomena because I don't seem to be really wired that way. But, but it was, felt very special, very profound, very um, incredibly meaningful, like more meaningful than anything. So it was, it was very big in that sense and it was so moving to me that I, you know, I was literally like weeping for, you know, a couple of days. It was like just, un, un, I couldn't stop. It was just so moved by it. But then here's a very interesting thing that happened after that, that I think I'm still getting. <laughs> so here was this big moment and then another meditation session a couple of days later and I'm sitting there and it's like, it's already been recognized that this is it, literally, like this is it. And I'm sitting there meditating and there's this sense, like it's like the oldest, most familiar feeling in me of like grasping is the best way to describe it. I'm like looking for something other than this. <laughs> And that's what I was doing. I could feel it. I could feel the pain of it. It was interesting because it was this whole sort of non-dual thing. It was like nothing about really God or devotion happening in, in my experience or in this retreat. But the next thing that happened was something I'd never really experienced before and never experienced afterwards, which was a voice. And the voice said to me, right in the middle of grasping, it said, isn't this enough? And it felt like reality speaking to me. And then the voice went on and it said, can you feel how much grace there is in this, just as it is? I immediately kind of broke down again and I saw kind of the fool's errand that I was on of like looking for it to look a particular way, I think was the, the crux of that understanding. Mm. I think that that through all of my subsequent experiences and involvement with different teachers and teachings, it's been a process of wearing away at this idea that the truth or God or reality or spirit or whatever you want to call it looks a certain way. <laughs> when I listen to other people and who are attending teachings or satsangs or speaking to me, one form or another that tends to be what's at the root of the question, which is, it couldn't be this. <laughs> this particular moment of discomfort or confusion or so get me out of this or get me, and it could be in a very conventional sense, not even a spiritual satsang type person, but just somebody who wants to feel better in their lives psychologically or mentally and emotionally. It's like, I don't want to experience what I'm experiencing. It's, it's uncomfortable. With a spiritual seeker, it gets in some ways even more complicated because there's this kind of whole architect, the superstructure of not only is this uncomfortable, but it's definitely not an enlightened state and it's definitely not divine. And it's, you know, so there's this, an additional overlay which leads to this kind of, in a sense, moving in opposition to our own experience, which by any other name is suffering.
I mean, I guess maybe the ordinary person goes by the, you know, life sucks, then you die philosophy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or as I, I saw some cartoon where these two um, dung beetles, it was the dung beetle bar, right? And there's a dung beetle sitting there drinking his drink, and the, the bartender's a dung beetle. And so the, the guy sitting there drinking his drink said, uh, so this is, is this all there is to it, Louis? You eat shit and die? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um... I would say that there's a sort of a paradoxical issue here, which mm -hmm. is that um, on the one hand, yeah, it, you don't want to be constantly looking for something other than what you're experiencing. You need to sort of settle into and accept the present as it is. But on the other hand, that is not to say that it couldn't get better. It's like there's some Zen saying, which is you're all perfect just as you are, but you can mm -hmm. all use improvement. Right. I, I do talk to people, and I'm sure you do too, who argue that, 
hey, everyday ordinary perception, that's it. Don't mm -hmm. look for anything more, just accept that. And I find that discouraging. I would find that discouraging if I believed mm. it because I realize both intellectually and through my own experience that there is more and there will always be more. And I've read in your writing something about mm -hmm. an ever, ever deepening appreciation right. kind of thing. But on the other hand, if you're kind of like, you know, not loving what is, to use Byron Katie's term, mm -hmm. then you're not accepting the foundation upon which that more may actually develop. Right. What do you right. think about all that? The other side of the paradox, of course, is that if there's something deeper, more subtle, more fulfilling, more awakened, however, you know, all the different versions of that, it can't be found in anything other than this. Right. So that's obviously the value of there, you don't have anything but this. Now, I think what might make that one might hear that in a, in a way that would be depressing or discouraging has everything to do with how we're defining this. That I think is really, you know, if I look at my own process of, so let's say we have an experience that feels very profound and, and uh, people will call that an awakening often in, in this circles, these circles. And now of course that fades because that's the nature of phenomena. Yeah. Like just like that, <laughs> that's how quickly it fades, everything. But some part of us wants to recapture that because of how it felt, whether it was blissful, whether it was liberating, all the different dimensions of it. And that's natural. Um, it's natural. Yeah. That effort to try to, and we have some experience that feels, at a more conventional level, it feels good and we want to try to hold on to it in some way, sustain it, or if it's more, we have spiritualized that as more awakened or more enlightened, we also want to hold on to that. But it's a similar dynamic, right? And it just simply can't be done. I mean, I'm interested in reality, and I look at reality, and I see that reality slips away in every instant. So it seems to be that... <laughs> That's one freedom, way of looking at it. Otherwise, reality continues to be here in every instant. That's another right, way. Right, yeah. which is the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> in a sense, it's just constantly morphing and mm -hmm. taking different shapes. I mean, it's, that's, it seems to be its nature. I mean, no two instants seem to repeat. No, but there is there's an underlying continuum that doesn't morph and change, is there not? And it may not even be perceived as underlying, it may be perceived as predominant. This is an interesting question, Rick. That is not my experience. My experience is, is that there's not sort of some realm where everything is impermanent and changing and then some sort of underlying realm that's changelessly, this is classically how it's framed, sort of the, the changeless awakeness or awareness that somehow knowing all of that change that's not my sense of it but right now i mean you and i are talking and our bodies are changing and our words are changing and the furnace is going on and off and, yeah. and this and that but we're aware we're aware we're aware that there's a continuous awareness that doesn't oscillate or fluctuate regardless of the changing things that change not only we are aware, but that even puts it into personal a term, but it's almost like one way of putting it, and I don't mean to get teachy here, but yeah. ima imagine that awareness is like a tone that's, that's playing, and it's been playing all your life, you know, this in the background or something. And after a while, you'd tune it out because it would, you know, you wouldn't be any point in listening mm -hmm. to it. But, but if you ever chose to do so, oh yeah, there's the tone still playing. But of course, that's just a metaphor, but it's that by virtue of which we're able to hear each other and see each other and so on, that doesn't change, even though the hearing and the seeing may come and go, yeah? 
I don't know. It's interesting because and even there's traditions, and I don't think we have to reference traditions necessarily, but we can. that speak about there's no awareness without phenomena. And so it's phenomena that reveal the nature of awareness. Hmm. That's how awareness is known by, by what it is illuminating. So from that standpoint, what we call awareness is, I mean, I think it's quite paradoxical in a sense because everything is morphing and changing. And for me, what is constant is that something is here. And that something and what is... is here is what is here is constantly changing. Okay. But but continuous the continuity is you could call it presence or but I wouldn't call it awareness necessarily. I would just say that something is here. And what's here is inconceivable and takes an infinite diverse number of forms and shapes and colors and textures and but yeah. it's here. Fair enough. I mean we could debate whether it actually may be awareness. You know, we could reference physics to say, okay, there's all this changing stuff, but you boil it down to the molecular and the atomic and the subatomic, and then, you know, there's this sort of underlying vacuum state or unified field or something which yeah. out of which all those things are said to arise, and, and it's, a, it's a continuum, even though those things might, might assume different forms as they transmute into one another. And there, there are physicists who argue that that unified field actually is consciousness or awareness, and they're probably the vast majority would argue that it isn't. But anyway, yeah. that's just something to play with. Here's where that's not just idle intellectual speculation, why mm -hmm. I think it's potentially relevant to people who are exploring these things, which is there is a tendency, and I've been involved with you know, what people would call more awareness kind of based teachings, where there's a, a kind of a tendency to reify awareness as something like everything else is not a thing, but awareness is a thing in the sense of, well, it, listen, if, it, if it's something that has constancy, yeah. then that suggests sort of thingness. It su suggests a kind of substantiality to it. That's what makes it. Does that make sense? I hear you. Yeah, and, and I think you can look at it that way. Right. But it's sort of a contradiction in terms because we usually reserve the word thing for things that have physical substance to them. And we're not saying that awareness does. But uh, people, people who would argue the way you just described would probably say, well, this actually doesn't have any ultimate reality because it's changing and one day it won't exist. But that which mm -hmm. is awareness will always exist. What is that the Gita says? It's um, the unreal has no being. The real never ceases to be. Right. The real never ceases to be, but the real is forever changing. <laughs> and that's what I meant by something is always here. That's the being. Something... This is the, the presence of whatever this is. Okay, if the real is always changing, let's keep playing with this because this is fine. Yeah. If the real is always changing, what is the real made of? That which is always changing, what is it made of? If we boil it down to that's, more and more fundamental that's a levels of its, question. Yeah. That's, that is the question. To me, the answer to that is it's the ultimate koan and it has no answer. And that is that we never get to the bottom of what it is. We never arrive at to me, both whether we're talking, because I'm also a scientist, whether we're talking science or we're talking contemplative spirituality, we have as humans this search for ultimacy, it would seem. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking like, about the really actual... to the bottom of what it is. If we're talking about the real creation here and the actual reality of the world we live in, then taking this cup as an example, a hundred years ago this cup didn't exist. A hundred years from now it may not exist. But the uh -huh. atoms that comprise it existed. They've been around for billions of years. So maybe the atoms are more permanent than the ceramic. 
yeah. relatively. Yeah. And those atoms, you know, what are they if you, if you boil them down more deeply, um, more fundamentally? And if you keep going as far as one can conceivably go, even if perhaps physics doesn't have the instrumentation to do so, do you not arrive at something which doesn't change or which is a continuum, an eternal continuum, which gives rise to apparent changing forms and phenomenon, but which in and of itself couldn't change, wouldn't change, doesn't. Remember my earlier comment about the God explanation was a cop-out? Uh -huh. We're kind of touching on a very similar thing, which mm -hmm. is we may give it whatever name we want, but can we actually reduce reality scientifically or spiritually to the final answer to what it actually is, like the fundament, you know, what, what is it? What is it at its root? Putting science aside, because I'm not a physicist, and they certainly haven't arrived at the final conclusion, and uh, my deepest hunch is they never will get to the bottom, because that's what makes infinity infinity, is that you never get to the bottom of what it is. It's unfathomable. If we look at our actual experience, which is what I'm most interested in with respect to our conversation, that's what I find when I... The only thing to explore really is our own experience, as far as I can tell, because that's what we got. Right. There's nothing else. Mm -hmm. And if we explore our experience, speaking from my own standpoint, I never get to the bottom of what it is, experientially. So I never land, like, now I've landed and I've finally arrived at what it actually is as something definite. And we as humans, because we have this thing, the mind and reason, and it seems understandable, like it should sort of make sense in some kind of nice, neat, tidy, here it is. You know, I've got the framework that tells me what it actually is. But, you know, we see this, of course, throughout the history of the traditions, too, this very strong theme of the inconceivable, indescribable, unresolvable nature of reality, that we actually never do get to the bottom of it. And that's what's so amazing about it to me. That's what's actually so liberating about it, because you can't pin it down. You can't say what it actually is. But you can be what it actually is. In fact, you are what it actually is. Right. You just don't know exactly what that is, because it's not definable. It's open-ended. Because it's beyond the intellect, beyond the senses, beyond the mind, beyond the words, and all that stuff. I mean, when, just the way we describe it, you can't know what it actually is, it's indescribable, and so on, because we're, what we're saying when we say that is, well, there are no thoughts or words or anything which can do justice to it, or which can right. contain it, or which can, one can only be it. <laughs> right. And what's extraordinary about that, Rick, from my, the more I kind of look into this and think about its implications for us as humans, often feeling like we're stuck in our lives and struggling in one form or another, is that that inconceivability and indescribability doesn't merely apply to these esoteric realms, but it applies to every dimension of our human experience. Absolutely. Also I mean, try describing to me the color red. Exactly. Yeah. I was just writing about that just this morning. Okay. Exactly yeah. that. We have a name for it, which is an incredible aspect of the intelligence of the universe, that it can see, and here's one way to understand it, it's pattern recognition of some kind, like we're recognizing, I don't know what it is exactly that we're recognizing, but here it is, and the, the names and concepts that we have for all of this stuff that within us and surrounding us is instantaneously, it's all right here, right? Mm -hmm. We know what these things are, we have concepts to describe them, make sense of all of this patterning. But if we actually look a little bit more closely at what it is we have this name for, whether it's red or 
a human being and a computer screen and taste of an apple or whatever. Everything. Yeah. If we look a little more closely, we realize that the the concepts that we use to kind of organize these patterns of whatever they, are they patterns of information or energy or I don't know what they actually are, but whatever it is that we're beholding and seeing forming itself as patterns that we then give concepts and names to, when we look more closely, like color is an amazing thing. It's like, well, what, what is it? We look up in the sky and on a clear day and we have a name for this thing. It's called blue. But the name actually, the concept tells us virtually nothing about what it actually is experientially. So we actually go into what that actually is and it's just, it's unfathomable, isn't it? And what's so, to me, just mind-blowing is how this is the case with everything we experience. And yet language is so powerful that, and conceptualization is so powerful that, and facile in the sense of, oh yeah, I know what all these things are because I've got categories to place them in, right? Yeah, and as a species, and, and I don't as, a, actually. as a society, we, we agree upon certain concepts and, and terms and so we can function right. you know i mean we all right. we all agree what red is and we know how to all stop at stoplights you know right and right. So uh, it has some kind of functional utility for yeah. sure and that's because most of us experience red unless we're colorblind and and even then we would know okay it's the top light you know so we have a concept of top and the yellow is the middle one <laughs> i think the significance of this for our conversation is what if the experience of pure consciousness or whatever we want to call it were as common as the experience of red in our society then you know we might have more readily agreed upon terminology for it in fact i mean you look at the vedic civilization or perhaps even buddhist civilizations and enough people were experiencing that stuff and talking about it all the time that they actually have a lot of words for it and words to sort of define the various nuanced differences mm -hmm. between types of experience of it right and you know so much as the inuit people have 30 words for snow well what if the experience of what you're calling pure consciousness pure awareness or whatever is equal to the experience of looking at the color red what do you mean equal you know the, the zogchen teacher long chempa is just one of the most beautiful articulators of that tradition and and he would sometimes talk about the equalness and evenness of everything, and I never really understood exactly what that meant, but, but something about it felt, had some ring of truth. And So the experience of red is equal to the experience of pure consciousness or any other experience in the sense of its inconceivable, infinite nature. There's a word that characterizes some aspect of it in a very crude, overgeneralized way, uh, like every word does, every concept. But what that experience actually is, is bottomless infinity. And that's true whether it's the most blissful moment of inseparability you experience on retreat or wherever, to the moment of complete confusion and chaos reigning supreme in your consciousness. And in that sense, they're equal in, in the sense of their infinite nature, their inconceivable nature. And that turns out to be incredibly, and I can say a little bit about this, we can get into talking about the psychology piece of this, but that to me holds the keys to our freedom ultimately, that, that understanding. To that I would say that if you're in a state of confusion and chaos, you're probably not going to be appreciating the infinite quality of everything. But I think it's possible to inculcate a state of being, a state of functioning in which 
throughout your normal everyday experience, you do apprehend and, and appreciate the infinite nature of everything because that's what everything actually is comprised of is the sort of infinite stuff, so to speak, of mm -hmm. the non-stuff of, of consciousness or being or whatever you want to call it. I don't claim to do this, but I have friends who do, who say that as they walk down the street or eat their lunch or whatever, everything is appreciated in terms of pure consciousness, in terms of the self, primarily, predominantly. Secondarily, it's appreciated as mashed potatoes or trees or, or whatever, but really that's their sort of ordinary, everyday way of living. But again, you know, to say that somebody who's in a mental hospital or something, utterly confused yeah. and psychotic, that you could actually say to them, hey, this is freedom too. It's not going to do them much good, I don't well, think. Well, no, no, I wasn't suggesting that. <laughs> well, just to take an extreme example of confusion sure. and, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. It seems that for most of us, it requires a little bit of looking, a little bit of experiential exploration to actually, because again, as I was saying, because of the nature of language and conceptualization, we've sort of formulated conclusions about what things are. Most people would say, I know what these things are, and they feel that way because they have a kind of familiarity with something and they have a way of framing it and categorizing it. And you mean everyday it. things like trees and cars and stuff like that? Whatever, yeah, everything. Yeah. Okay. Any human experience, but yes, everyday things as well. And so I'm talking about a kind of a deconstructive inquiry in the sense of like, let's actually take a look. Like if you think you know what this is, like look again. Like let's look a little bit more carefully I'll tell you a, a kind of a story as it relates to psychology, and you know, that's one of the hats that I wear. So I teach a class, a graduate school class, on it's called evidence-based approaches to therapy. So it's looking at these different schools of therapy and psychotherapy and counseling and understanding I'm teaching people about what's the state of the science about the, the effectiveness of these different approaches. So a little bit about the approach and the theory behind it and and I talk in the class a lot about, I use the example of the, the blind man and the elephant, and I say these different schools of thought of cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic therapy and the mindfulness tradition, they're each person in a sense, they're looking at reality from a particular perspective. And it's the kind of the, the map that that theory is bringing, right, to reality. And they're understanding the client all very much in terms of that framework that they bring to it, right? So we look at the evidence. and. Basically, if you look at the evidence of psychotherapy research, including drugs that are used for pharmacology, it's sobering in the sense that after whatever, 50, 100 years now of scientific psychology and psychiatry, our capacity to actually really liberate people from their, the things that distress them in their lives in some kind of enduring way is very poor, very poor. So even the best evidence-based methods that science would say, right, the most effective methods, help some people to some degree. But many people, they're not very effective. So at the end of the, the, the semester, I ask the students, I say, so let's explore this a little bit. Why do you think that might be the case? Like, what are we missing? Are we missing something fundamental about our understanding of human psychology? And, you know, people come up with some interesting ideas. And then that's when I kind of save my what we're talking about for the very end of the class. And I say, look, just try this on as a hypothesis. I'm not saying this is the way it is. And basically what I say to them is, it's a curious thing. We as human beings are obviously very fascinated by studying the things in the world and getting, like we were speaking about earlier, getting to the bottom of what they are. So the chemist is you know, diving into 
chemicals to explore them and the neuroscientist is looking at the brain and trying to get to the basis of neural functioning and the physicist is looking at the quantum realities and trying to, again, trying to understand what is this made of. And I said, what's interesting, what I said to my class is that as humans, we, we haven't, it would seem for the most part, applied a similar sort of curiosity to our own experience. So I said, let's take anxiety, okay? Lots of people go to therapy to deal with anxiety. And then we come up all with the, all these treatments and we measure anxiety. And, but throughout this whole process, really neither the client nor the therapist or the scientist studying these methods has asked this fundamental question, which is, what is anxiety? What is it not as a, an intellectual question like, well, it's the neural firings in the amygdala or which is cool, you know, that we can explore the, a question like that through those means. But I'm asking it much more as a first-person kind of inquiry. Like, what is, as an experience, what is it? In the same way that we would say, what's the table made of, fundamentally? What's the experience of anxiety made of? Because, in a way, we've skipped over the most, most important question. We're trying to solve a problem about something that we don't even know what it is yet. But we've assumed that we know what it is. And we have a very general sense of it's painful, I don't like it, it's uncomfortable, and I want to experience something else, which is very natural. But my, my very strong sense of this is that the freedom comes from actually investigating what it, it's actually made of experientially. Because what we discover is that it isn't what we thought it was as we were beginning, beginning our conversation with. Mm. That it's much, much more... It transcends what we think it is. It's utterly beyond what we think it is. And it turns out to be, it's God. It's made of infinity. It's made of the whatever. <laughs> it's, made of, it's made of reality. And yeah. that's, not, that's not something you can say what it actually is because it's infinite. But that turns out to be incredibly liberating when you realize there's not something, you know, it's really the basis kind of of emptiness, emptiness teachings is that we discover that things don't have the kind of substantiality that we actually are sort of labeling and conceptualizing mm -hmm. and leads us to believe that they actually have. Well, if you take that leap, of course, then uh, you, know, you can immediately reduce everything down to God or to, <laughs> to the infinite. Uh -huh. And it might be also good to have a few way stations on the way to fill in the gaps. Tell I mean, me about that. What, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, okay. Well, the, the, I mean, the neuro, to take anxiety as an example, the neurophysiologist yeah. might say, well, it's certain chemicals, and the psychologist mm -hmm. might say, well, it has to do with your, your upbringing as a child or something. In spiritual circles, the Upanishads say all fear is born of duality, if we want to throw in, you uh -huh. know, equate fear with anxiety. And that kind of brings it into our ball court here, which is that if we are... If experiencing fear or anxiety is because mm -hmm. we're functioning dualistically. And if we could mm -hmm. sort of transcend the subject-object split and experience or know the unity of things, like you were saying, it's all God, then the anxiety hopefully would, would dissolve. But you can't just do that intellectually. It's well, kind, what of, if, I mean, kind of a cop-out to just say, oh, it's just God, yeah. you know, and meanwhile you go on feeling anxious. Right, but if you actually, I mean, there, there's sort of, you could break it down, including spiritual te teachings, into sort of two camps, if you will. I don't necessarily think of it this way, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. But one is, in either subtle or not so subtle ways, still sees a state like anxiety or fear as a problem that must be solved. 
and the spiritual teachings are going to solve it transcendentally by realizing some dimension that's not afraid, let's say, or get to the root of it, say, if it's a dualistic understanding that's giving rise to fear and anxiety, whatever. It's, but it's still actually seeing that particular expression of reality, for lack of a better word, as a problem that needs to be solved. And look, where you and I are using language, of course, and we're bringing perspectives to bear upon a reality that can't actually be contained in any of our language or perspective. So let's just like lay that out there. What you're describing is a particular perspective that can certainly benefit people. But there's another perspective that I'm sharing, which is I would consider it a different approach to this, which is uh, considering that what we typically think of as problems that we have to solve either medically or psychologically or spiritually may not actually be the problems we imagine them to be. But that in large part, we are defining those problems into existence by the way in which we conceive of those things to be. And if you start to look at something like anxiety, is a great example. And you start to actually see it doesn't hold together. It's an abstraction, actually. It's an abstract thing. There's no such thing as anxiety. It's an abstraction. As an experience, it's tangible. But the deeper we go into what it actually is experientially, the more we discover how open it actually is, how open-ended it is, how undefinable it actually is. And the more we explore that, in my own sense of this, my own experience, and we're working with other people, the more people begin to discover a sense of freedom in the midst of that rather than freedom apart from those experiences or mm -hmm. transcendent of those experiences. Does that make sense? It does. Let me throw a few points back at you. Of course. Hopefully I'll get this right the way you just phrased it, but it doesn't actually exist as you think it is. How did you say that? It doesn't actually... It's not what we imagine it is. Not what we imagine it is. But nothing is... In fact, it's inconceivable, and this is true of everything, of course. So the, the notion that I am stuck in anxiety aspect of that conceptualized framework mm -hmm. of myself being stuck in some state of mind, it, all of those are abstractions. Right. Because when investigated, each one of those breaks down or opens up and is discovered to be utterly transcends what we imagine that it is. So the transcendent doesn't lie outside of the afflictive state of mind in some space of you know, dispassionate awareness. It's actually in the belly of the beast. Mm -hmm. the, the beast itself is made of, call whatever you will, natural perfection or reality or God, or it's made of infinity. It's, it's made of the inconceivable reality itself. What, what else could it be made of? I agree with that, and I think I'm cool with what you're saying. Not that the truth hinges upon what I think, certainly. Yeah, but any questions you have about it are fantastic, because that's, that's good. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear whatever about it strikes you as maybe not quite you know, understandable, not understandable, but maybe not practical or maybe, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very open. I'm just laying out kind of my own experience and, and I have a strong sense of the utility of this for people in their, in their day-to-day -day lives. And it's not an abstraction. Well, that would be the key word for me is utility. Also, I have a caution about dumbing down awakening or enlightenment. You know, you hear people saying, oh, you can be enlightened and still be angry and depressed and a total screw up, you know, and, and, and all that stuff. And I think, well, you're really, you know, I'm not doing justice to the idea of what mm -hmm. it's supposed to be. I don't even use the word because I feel like there are so few examples of it in this world and uh, most people are making good progress, but I kind of reserve that for a more superlative degree of development. I would hope, and maybe you're saying this about when you mention the word utility, that spiritual development, however we want to define it, would 
dissipate at least the predominance of experiences of anxiety and fear and other negative traits. And, it, and traditionally, it's characterized as doing that. Because again, you mentioned the word utility or utilitarian. I, I, th mm -hmm. I think there's a practical value to this stuff. And, oh, totally. um, and it, it should actually make one happier in life and make life go, yeah. go more successfully and smoothly. It shouldn't just be some pie in the sky thing that, and you're, you're still a jerk. Yeah, or, no, or you're no, still I, miserable or whatever. Right. I mean, you know, to use an extreme example, people who recognize, you know, what I'm describing here are, it's not likely that they'll be flying airplanes into buildings and right. blowing people, right? And there's a reason for that, yeah. right? Well, maybe that might be a good example because that's a classic example of fixating on a particular map of reality and imagining it to be true, which is, you know, the essence of dogma, right? The yeah, and I think you addressed that nicely in your Rain in the Monsoon book. In fact, I took some notes on that, that, you know, fixation and fundamentalism and, and the assumption that, you know, we know the truth and all that is very dangerous. <laughs> your question, I mean, is a good one, Rick, about, you know, of course, of like, well, how does this roll out in a person's life? And the paradox here, say, around some, like you say, you know, you would expect as someone matures as a human being, if you want to take it out of esoteric language, and they just develop themselves, they develop greater awareness, greater sensitivity, greater awakened sort of clarity and wisdom that, that they're going to tend to be less reactive, they're going to tend to be less fixated on their own ideas and points of view, they're going to t tend to be less defensive, they're going to tend to be less conflictual, they're going to tend to be less fearful. All of that and makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. I think that, if you will, the radical proposition that's not like my own, I mean, it's shared by other people, teachers and traditions as well, which is that the paradox is, is that we don't get to the freedom from fear by making an end around, but we actually discover it right in the middle of yeah. whatever, right? Yeah, right. Because it's right there. So it isn't necessarily kind of a, oh yeah, well, anything goes. Although, in a sense, anything does go because reality could show up in any number of ways. And then it's always a question of like in the moment that it's showing up and appearing however it's appearing, what's our understanding of it? What's our engagement with it? That's a moment by moment thing, you know, yeah. my, my sense of it. And that's not whatever we may have realized a moment ago or two weeks ago or a month ago is in a certain sense irrelevant to what's actually happening right now. Where are we defaulting? You know, where are we going back to as a our own understanding and our you know, one thing I was going to say too, and that I think is a really important piece. And is this related be, to what you were just saying? Yeah, unless okay. you had another question. Well, I was going to throw it. something in, but if this is related, yeah, keep, keep no, going. No, no, no. No, go ahead. I can bring this up later. Okay. Well, not too much later, but <laughs> I was just going to say that, you know, relating to my own experience, if I'm meditating, let's say, and, yeah. and this could also apply to the waking state, if I'm experiencing some emotional discomfort or physical discomfort or something, I mean, my attitude is not to try to do an end run around it to get and get to the transcendent, but to sort of. Mm -hmm you know, dwell right on it and kind of go to the heart of it. And then usually you find that it, it does dissipate. And I just also wanted to throw in Ken Wilber since you mentioned him earlier. Yeah. And, you know, he says, well, there's waking up, but there's also cleaning up and growing up. And he, he has his idea of lines of development and that these, these various lines of development, emotional, intellectual, consciousness, this and that, can get a little bit out of correlation with one another or, or greatly out of correlation with it. We, we have with, many examples of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, go <laughs> ahead. Ourselves as well, probably. <laughs> <laughs> right. The one thing that, as we're talking about experience, and that's really kind of 
that's what I'm inviting kind of us to explore and other people to explore what is the nature of our experience, actually, because that's what we got. And, and we are kind of walking around, running around in our lives, sort of really assuming that we know what things are. And we're not necessarily stopping to question that. And, and it turns out that that stopping to question it, my sense of it is it's a really, it's an exciting exploration. It's, an, it's a remarkable exploration. It's, it's a, a awe-inspiring to actually look into our own experience and begin to discover that things are way beyond what we think that they actually are. You know, the little, it's kind of like I, I in some of my recent writings, I, I keep finding myself returning to the map and the territory, you know, that, that language or any of our conceptual frameworks to make sense of our experience or the world or other people, they're just that, they're like a map to that to territory. Let's say, you know, I have a map of who you are, I'm, in, I'm your partner, and I kind of have a working model of who you are at some level. And this is all very implicit. It's not very explicit, right? But my map of you, of who you are, my concepts of who you are, which is based on a lot of my experiences of you, of course, just like the map of New York, couldn't hope to capture what you actually are, right? Not even close. No. Like, think about this experience. Like, okay, if you were to describe what's going on here, well, two guys are having a conversation about the nature of reality over this thing called Skype, and they're using a computer, and that's a basically like a, a shorthand way of explaining what's actually happening. But what's actually happening is, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, think about the, I mean, I'm gonna say infinite array of phenomena that are taking place in the midst of what I just described. Oh yeah. I mean, from sensations to memory, to consciousness, to thoughts, feelings, subtle sensations and energies and things that we don't even have words to describe. And all of that is happening. I mean, it's like each instant is so information dense. It's so <laughs> packed. No, it it's gives me goosebumps to hear you say that. I think about this all the time. I mean, look at your finger. It has billions of cells in it. Not to mention all the sort of the, the structural and anatomical and, you know, nervous and, and venous and all the different systems in it. And each one of those cells is more complex than Tokyo in all of its detail. And it's self-repairing and self-replicating. And that's just your finger, you know. And it just goes on and on throughout the entire universe. Every cubic centimeter of it is just packed with unimaginable complexity and, and intelligence. And we just kind of saunter along and out without even thinking about this stuff. We take it for granted because exactly. I suppose it wouldn't do us much practical good to think about it all the time. But when you, when you do, when you pause to think, it's like awe-inspiring. Yeah, it is awe-inspiring. And maybe that is actually, I mean, that may feel like a, some sort of luxury or something, but maybe that, talk about a, an incredible practicality. I mean, if that kind of investigation, which can be very light and playful. It doesn't need to be a heavy-handed, onerous, I'm slogging away at this and an overly dramatic thing, but it can be a playful investigation into what's here experientially. And of course, that includes the circumstances within which we call it the external world, if you will. But, but that is awe-inspiring. The fact that it's even here and appearing is awe-inspiring. So that's pretty practical to me because that gives rise to a felt sense that human beings deeply aspire to, to touch, you know, in their lives. And that's pretty damn practical to me. This, so it's, this to know, me is where yeah. God comes in. Because if we if mm -hmm. you consider what we're actually talking about here, we're talking about a display of intelligence that is vast beyond, you know, imagining and that 
is just continuing to orchestrate this amazing thing <laughs> and has been doing so for all eternity probably throughout all conceivable space and time and it completely permeates and interpenetrates us we are that ultimately essentially that sense just grows and grows and grows and who is it I think Albert Einstein said that if you're not continually in a state of awe then <laughs> you're, 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 not, gonna, you're not paying attention right you're not paying attention <laughs> right I mean, to me, it's just, it, it lights me up. It just it excites me with a kind of, it's its own ecstatic exploration. To fe and, and, and it's also not, I mean, there's kind of the, the contemplation of it at a more mental level, which is also beautiful. Like maybe a scientist is investigating, you know, the hundred trillion neural connections in the brain. I mean, come on, that's just like, <laughs> it's unthinkable, right? But at, even at the experiential level of like, you know, the sense of touch, and like what's actually happening there, you know, you touch your friend or you touch your lover, you know, and you feel what's actually there and you go into that, like it's a whole universe inside of that. Literally, there's a whole universe inside of it. And I'm laughing because I'm thinking about it. I was talking to a client. I was doing a Skype session with her. You know, she was struggling with some different emotional states. And I was speaking kind of like you and I are speaking right now. And she said, it sounds like you're on some sort of drug or something, like <laughs> that you're describing reality yeah, like yeah. ayahuasca or something. Mm. And I just laughed because you know, I hadn't taken any drugs for the last 30 plus years or something. And, and then I wrote this little piece about it. It says reality, the greatest drug, mm. because it's a total 24-7 acid trip. I mean, if you actually... <laughs> well, you know, we're full of drugs, you know, it's by virtue, of, <laughs> by virtue of chemicals that we're able to have this conversation in part. And maybe that some part of what the substances do, I don't actually know this in terms of the biochemistry of it or whatever, the neuroscience of it, but I have a sense that it, it's simply opening up. In a sense, it's, it's revealing, you know, we're talking about the information density and, and the ways in which we sort of, for seemingly utilitarian reasons, are censoring out so much of that, the richness of the ocean of data that we're swimming in, of experiential phenomena that it's as if that censoring apparatus maybe through some of these substances gets quieted a little bit enough so that we start to actually touch into wow how much is actually here of a subtler nature that we're yeah. just sort of overlooking because of the overlay of ideas about yeah yeah i know i know what that is that's a tree or that's a yeah. say really take another look it's quite something well, there's a lot of threads to this conversation that we could pursue. Well, just on the censoring one, if you ever took acid back in the old days, which you probably did, uh, yeah. yeah, obviously you wouldn't want to have that go on perpetually. You're happy to have it shut down after a while. But, <laughs> but I think one way of looking at spiritual development is it builds in us the capacity to be more and more and more uncensored, unclosed mm -hmm. down. And, and mm -hmm. you know, if you were somehow able to pop from where you were 40 years ago to where you are now, it would probably be too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a verse in the Gita, or there's a chapter in the Gita mm -hmm. where Arjuna begs Lord Krishna to show oh, him. Oh, he wants to see a, see, wants to see his divine form, you know, basically right. he's asking for omniscience. And Lord Krishna first says, no, you can't handle it. Arjuna kind of pleads. And then he says, okay, here you go. And <laughs> then he pretty much spends the rest of the chapter begging him to take it away because it's just way yeah. too much. But I think that it's kind of interesting to consider that we can build the inner strength or capacity or whatever it is to be open to a huge range of phenomenon and to integrate that with practical everyday life. Mm -hmm. And it makes life a lot more interesting than it 
than if we're all shut down. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, in keeping with kind of what some people call the direct path kinds of teachings that for me, it's like when I was more in a kind of an awareness sort of model, if you will, I found it very much more powerful to help people to recognize that awareness is already present, that this is already a functioning thing that you don't have to contrive, you don't have to cultivate, you don't have to create. I would say in the same sense, this sensitivity of these subtler, non-conceptual, if you will, dimensions of experience is also happening. In fact, it's happening all the time. I mean, it's, here's a simple example. You and I are processing this conversation. There's a processing of this conversation and the use of language and conceptualization and understanding one another's presumably what's being said that is all occurring completely non-consciously. There's no intentionality really, very little if any. We don't know how we're formulating concepts. We don't have access to that, how that process is actually occurring. I don't have to create that intelligence. That intelligence is already operating. I can simply recognize that it is operating and, and the recognition of it, like the way it works with attention, what we recognize tends to kind of come alive. So we're recognizing kind of these, these dimensions of ourselves that aren't really typically being noticed and recognized. True, but we've spent decades playing with concepts and practicing using words to express them and so on and so forth. Yes. And so, you know, we wouldn't have been able to have this conversation 40, 50 years ago, maybe at least not the way we're having it. And you're a musician. I'm kind of reminded that, let's say, a, mm -hmm. a professional level, the, the, the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, when he listens to an orchestra, he hears all kinds mm -hmm. of things that I wouldn't hear because he has the training and the, he's, he's cultured the capacity over the course of his lifetime sure. to, to have that sort of appreciation. So I think this is also true of what we're talking about in terms of perception and, and the experience of life. It is what it is, obviously, but there's also a, a vast range of potential for culturing a deeper appreciation of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I wanted to touch on that, that I was going to say something about earlier and was even going to begin our conversation with, I'll bring it up now, an hour and a half into it. <laughs> you know, I started to share some of my spiritual journey and, and I stopped quite a ways back in 2000 when I was hanging out with Andrew Cohen a little bit and mm -hmm. that didn't last for very long. But I've been both involved directly and then also an observer of you know, people engage with different teachers and teachings. And I think a question that I think is really worthy of people's exploration is this question of authority. We do it in these circles, in these worlds that you and I are, are in and having conversations within and without even thinking sometimes about who it is we reference as sort of authoritative voices in the world of spirituality and consciousness exploration. But why do we do that? It's a really interesting question. And we, we do it as I said, often without even thinking, people have a certain stature that's, whether they're various, you know, sort of exemplars like from traditional religions like Jesus or Krishna or more contemporary esoteric teachers like Ramana or Nisargadatta, and then, you know, living teachers as well. Well, with the same process goes on, well, we start to study with a teacher. And, well, I'll share a story with you that, that happened as I was transitioning from stepping away from Andrew's teaching and I met Adya and became close with him, and both as a friend, as a mentor. And he said, maybe the most important thing he ever said to me was in a, a private conversation. And he said, John, no matter how many spiritual authority figures we appeal to, we always come back to the aloneness of our own experience. 
That is the ultimate authority. It's our own experience. It can't be anything. Else. That's all we have. As far as I can tell, as I was saying throughout our conversation, one observation that I've made, and I've seen it, and I feel, I think it's just whatever grace or dispositional wiring or karma or whatever, that I, I have a tendency to not quickly turn authority over to another voice, even one that many people are perceiving as a spiritual authority, which doesn't mean that I'm not open to being mentored by them in profound ways. But my observation has been that people frequently do turn their, themselves over to the authority of the teacher. I think it's highly problematic. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting question why it is that we do that and seemingly do it so easily. We see the same thing in traditional religion. I mean, people are just ceding authority to the Pope or to Mohammed or pick your favorite authority figure. But what's that based on? We are the ones granting them the authority, but we never really stop to consider that. Like you're giving them the authority. Yeah. It's not like it's just there. We are the ultimate holders of that authority, but we give it over to the other. It's a perplexing kind of thing to me. You know, there's a, there's a phrase that Tammy Simon uses, sounds true, when she does yeah. her interview, she, in her mellifluous voice, she says, sounds true, your trusted partner on the spiritual path, you know, <laughs> and that's a nice phrase, you know, trusted partner. There's a certain trust and respect, transfer this to the issue of teachers, teacher. and yet there's a sort of a partnership thing, sort of that a friend, you know, Mitra, I believe in Sanskrit means friend, you know, it kind of helps to undercut the hierarchical dichotomy that often creeps in. But that is not to say that we should eschew all teachers or anything. No, no, no. Because we couldn't even get through high school if we did that. There has to be a sort of a recognition that, that some people know more than us about certain things right. in, in whatever right. field of endeavor. But obviously there have been so many unhealthy situations in, in, this, on mm -hmm. this, in the spiritual scene that, as you say, it's an important thing to take a look at. Yeah. And I think as it relates to you know, our discussion about experience and what is experience, that, that kind of inquiry that I'm speaking about, I wrote something the other day about this, that in a sense, if you think about conceptualizing, there's kind of an analog here, I think, with the teacher as authority about reality, which is that in a sense with our interpretive mechanisms, interpreting reality, one way to think of this is we're in a sense telling reality what it is through those interpretations. Mm -hmm. And it's natural. In fact, if we make it impersonal, which it ultimately is, that this is the intelligence of the universe that's doing this interpreting, we wouldn't even know how to begin to, to formulate these conceptualized frameworks to describe reality. The intelligence of nature is doing that. But there's an alternative, which is what I've been sharing about really, which is what if we let experience tell us what it is? Because what it is is beyond what we imagine it is, as we've been saying, what, it, what we conceive of it to be, because we can't conceive of it, it's beyond our capacity to conceive of it. So that kind of invitation I've been speaking about of, of looking at what is the nature of our experiences, this is another way to kind of understand what I'm saying, which is let your experience be the authority. What is it? Does that make sense? It does. It reminds me of something Maharishi Mahesh Yogi once said. Some reporter asked him how many followers he had. He said, I don't have mm -hmm. any followers. Everyone follows their own experience. Of course, he kind of, of course. violated that later on, but right. he was, that's the point he was trying to make, that ultimately it's your own experience that should be the acid test of whether any teacher or teaching is worth spending time with. And the acid test of what's real, actually, because if you real. say the only reality is the reality of our experience, then there's only one thing to investigate, which is that 
domain of experience, call it a field of experience or a wallless room of experience or whatever. It's this vast, boundless field of experiencing. There is no other reality than that until there is one, and that will be a new field of experiencing. That's the thing to investigate. And to me, the best teachings and teachers are the ones that are really, they're directing us to that. They're directing us not to kind of a and this, this has been one of the reasons I've stepped away from many of the teachings and teachers I've been involved with despite getting a lot from my involvement was I found this sort of tendency, which is an old story, of the teaching develops uh, its own kind of framework of making sense of reality. And it's a, sort of a teaching tool in part. But before too long, that framework starts to become the object of devotion, right? Rather than the inconceivable territory that that map is trying to illuminate and that's how you end up with religion and dogma and in more contemporary terms teachings that are either cult-like in nature or bordering on that in terms of a kind of a the framework becoming or as part of that the personality of the teacher and the ideas of the fantastic nature of the teacher and the supernatural nature of the teacher and to me maybe those have their own benefits but more often than not I don't think they actually really liberate people to investigate their, the nature of their own experience. There's a tricky thing here, and I just was listening to yeah. Ad, Adya talk about it the other day, and that is that it's natural in a certain stage of our development for devotion to begin to blossom. And uh -huh. devotion likes to have a point of focus. It's not just an abstract sort of feeling. It wants to sort of focus on something. Mm -hmm. And, and Adi was mentioning, you know, Shankara writing wonderful devotional poetry. And of course, there's mm -hmm. Ram Ramana with Aranachala and, you know, mm -hmm. Nisargadatta singing bhajans and doing pujas and all that mm -hmm. stuff. So all the sort of the non-dual giants had a devotional nature to them. but. Question is, if the devotion is focused on a living teacher, does the teacher have the capacity to handle it without it going to their heads or without it becoming a, an unhealthy thing for his students? Mm -hmm. There's a very popular teacher these days, I guess I won't mention his name, but I've heard that these days people are prostrating at his feet and even kissing his feet and so on. And I'm thinking, uh oh, is this thing going off track? Is that really healthy? Does he have the capacity to allow that or should he allow that, you know, without it going off on a tangent? So it's, it's a delicate issue. I think it's something that has to be considered in, on the spiritual scene. Because again, I think the blossoming of, of devotion and love is an inevitable stage in, in one's development. And it needs, mm -hmm. it needs a channel of expression, but it just has to be healthy. Let's say it's a, a natural, there's something about the movement of devotion. And, and I think it's related to what we were speaking about earlier around this sense of awe and and just complete, you know, bowing in the face of the inconceivable intelligence of the universe. And I have the sense of that, particularly in certain moments where there is a sense of like, you know, falling in love with that, which is, of course, what's giving rise to everything. And clearly, you can't, what else could it be? But I've never quite understood what would be the value of directing that towards a single human being. I mean, there's certainly schools of thought that that is not only beneficial, but even a requirement in some sort of guru yoga. But my observation at least has been is that, that, that it's a distraction from the heart of the matter, which is mm -hmm. what is this? Not can I imagine that someone has greater access to it than I do somehow and continue to believe that. But it's like this is fundamentally about us discovering what we are 
not worshiping it in the form of some other. That's not to diminish the value of mentoring and being taught, because I don't mean to imply that at all, but those are feel like different things somehow. I think that the kind of worship of the teacher, though, has a lot of staying power. I mean, I see it keep, even in very educated, contemporary, you know, Western culture, there's a strong draw to... I actually believe, here's, what, here's my own hunch about this, Rick. I'm just exploring this for myself, like what's at the root of that. And here's one piece of it, which is that, remember how earlier we were talking about the big experiences and that we tend to kind of associate that with liberation, with freedom, with, with God, the really big ones. And then we feel like, well, somehow this isn't quite that, like this sort of ordinary moment of having a conversation. So there's something we... I was talking with someone the other day about this teacher, and their focus was all about this amazing transmission that they could get from this teacher and how that made them feel so extraordinary. And to me, that's really to miss the point. I mean, that is not the point. The point is not to have extraordinary experiences. Unless those extraordinary experiences, the real extraordinary experiences in my mind, are the ones that reveal the extraordinary nature of all experience. That's the experience to have. And that can sometimes be, feel very extraordinary to recognize that. But then it's the old like chop wood carry water. I mean, it sounds so ridiculous, but it's like, it's a hundred percent, right? Like we've been saying all along, it's hundred percent in each and every momentary instantaneous flashing of reality. It's just, it's just this, it's always just this. Yeah, it is. And that is not, since you mentioned transmission, I, I wouldn't totally dismiss the value of that either. I mean, you always have to kind of play devil's advocate with every point that for comes sure. up because there's always the other side to it. Um, Absolutely. Like, for instance, you see a picture of Ama over my shoulder, and, and a, point, a point she made one time is that it's valuable to be in the presence of an enlightened person. It's like if there's a sort of a brightly burning log, and you, mm -hmm. and then you have another log and you want to get it burning, put it close to the, the burning log and it'll catch. So there's definitely something to that. I mean, Adya has his retreats, and a lot of people say they wake up in the presence of him and the people in the room, all kind of creating a collective consciousness that is conducive mm -hmm. to waking up. I'll let you respond to that in a second, but I also just want to throw in regarding mm -hmm. the devotional thing a question. Well, let me just ask it in a general sense. Is it possible for the heart to be really full of love and um, just overflowing without it wanting to take a particular focus or a particular channel? I can think of so many examples where it, it has taken and does take mm -hmm. a particular focus. I can't think of too many where it doesn't. I don't know, great sages, they're always like prostrating to a mountain or to their guru or to somebody. Mm -hmm. they, they, they kind of choose a, a point of focus for their devotion. Mm -hmm. It brings me back to an experience I had many years ago where I won't name the teacher, but I was invited to sing at a satsang, mm -hmm. very well-known teacher in a lineage. And the, it was happening in someone's home. All the devotees were just, I was not a devotee, but I was invited to perform there. They're all whooping and it up. I, the devotees were really like buzzing around like they were so excited that the guru was coming to their home and you know it was just like all the preparations were being made and first of all right off the bat there's something about that I just I don't grok yeah I don't stand that have you ever anyway, been, have you ever been in a phase when you were that way no I've been involved with teachings though where that was definitely happening yeah to me it seemed like missing the point somehow yeah. but anyways i mean i've been there done that myself but yeah. you know it's like yeah. okay <laughs> moved on but, but there's different you know there's different forms that this can take too around kind of the 
surrendering one's authority, this is a more extreme example. But yeah. to answer your question about directing that energy of devotion, mm -hmm. and they were certainly directing it towards her, I remember I made the terrible mistake, unbeknownst to me, of using the bathroom that was being reserved for the, the uh. group. They had already cleaned it, and they literally went back in the bathroom and cleaned it, spent another half an hour in there cleaning after it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it sounds ridiculous, but it, right, it speaks to this sort of belief that in the specialness of this one that we've, you know, that we've elevated. And, and in a sense, there's two sides to it. It's accurate in the sense that they are worthy of the ultimate respect and devotion, just as everyone else is. And that, that was the piece that's like, why are you not treating everybody that walks in the door the way you're treating her? And no, I, that's a good was, point. That's a know, good point. I, yeah. I mean, you see situations where people are all gaga over the teacher, and yet they, they're treating you know, everybody else like crap. We're supposed to see God in all beings, right? Ideally, I would say that that kind of respect and appreciation shouldn't be reserved just for the special teacher, although there might be something you know, something special about your relationship with the teacher, just as there would be with your wife. But, you know, you should treat everyone with the kind of decency that, with which you'd want to be treated and compassion. Yeah, I mean, I've, so had, I've had experiences, you asked if I've been involved in those kinds of relationships, you know, with teachers. I mean, where I felt such a sense of gratitude for what the relationship and what I had been learning from them that I just, you know, broke down and shed tears of just feeling grateful for yeah. their presence in my life. So I'm actually pretty wired to be quite devotional in a certain way, but it's just not as a follower. No, I got uh, you. And that's good. And, I mean, and it's, it's really more a question of like what that piece of us that Adya one time said something about, you know, we keep putting it out there until we're willing to see where it actually is. And that sounds simplistic, but I think it's really profound because that's what we are. That's what we are through and through and through and through and through. And it's all about just growing in the appreciation of that. Yeah. that like the impossibility of being anything other than the absolute reality. That that's, we can't be anything other than that. That doesn't diminish that there's people in our lives who can help us to discover that. Because that's what teachers hopefully are all about in the end.
bring you near Cause everything I seek is always present Everything I seek is always here There's nothing I can do to brighten this awareness Nothing I can do to make it clear It's already shining oh so brilliant Yeah, I was just uh, you know, reflecting on this conversation we're having about the, the sort of the special beings and, and the attraction that we have. I think it ties into some sort of romantic ideals that we have around, you know, we, it's, you see it in the spiritual liter literature of the, you know, these extraordinary beings doing miracles and, you know, that also often go to credible lengths of discipline and to realize what they've realized and whether they're sitting in retreats for years and years and and this is a kind of a newer sense that, I, that I'm kind of intuiting and, and I've shared a little bit of this with people and people seem to find this you know helpful in some ways so I'll share it here and and I wrote a piece recently about 
what I call the over-dramatization of the spiritual path and how I don't see that as often very helpful. And I just wanted to read a little piece, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. It's one section. I say, it sounds so dramatic, doesn't it, to give up everything for the sake of truth? Are you willing to really, you hear teachers talk like this, and it, it stimulates something, and I think it ties into kind of beliefs that we have that that's what they've done, and that's how they've managed to become so enlightened, is that they've sacrificed it all for the truth. And it sounds very dramatic, and I'm just raising a question. We talked before about how much utility does that perspective actually have for us, and I'm questioning that. So it sounds so dramatic, doesn't it, to give up everything for the sake of truth, all our desires, all our beliefs, all our control. The question is, is it really true? Must everything be given up or let go of in such an absolute dramatic fashion in order for profound transformation to occur? What if all this dramatizing, romanticizing, and absolutizing of the spiritual path wasn't necessary? What if we didn't need to surrender anything or everything? What if it wasn't necessary or even possible to give up all beliefs, to stop thinking, interpreting, conceptualizing, or surrender the ego into the fires of truth? Could it be that it's possible, maybe even more effective, to engage in spiritual practice and inquiry without this dramatic sense of urgency and seriousness but instead come to it in much more the spirit of light-hearted curiosity and playfulness? Could it be that the overly romanticized do or die, I must surrender and die to the separate self at all costs mentality is precisely what perpetuates the sense that we are in fact bound, stuck, separate selves in the first place? Well, those are all interesting questions, possibly rhetorical. <laughs> I, I could probably give my opinion about every single point you made there, but if I were to do so, I would do so in a kind of a both-and nuanced kind of way, because there are arguments to be made on both sides, if there are many sides, perhaps, and different ways of interpreting all those different questions and, diff and different ways of interpreting what it means to give everything up. I mean, you might give everything up in a very real sense and yet still have the nice car and the nice house and everything else, and yet you might be more actually renounced than some guy living in a cave. Well, you know, if reality is all that there is, then does it actually make sense that you would have to give up anything to recognize what you are? That doesn't even make logical sense. You are it with all your warts and... Now, does the recognition of that transform the human being in some profound ways in the way that they move in the world? I'm not denying that for one second. So. It's to your earlier question about that could easily sound like a kind of a nihilistic, what you do, whatever, you can continue being a total, you know, <laughs> fool yeah. and uh, acting in ways that create suffering. And that's not what I'm talking about. But as the entry point into discovering that hey, we just have, we have, it's built into so many of the way teachings are talked about and formulated about and people engage with them with this sense of, the truth or God or reality is something that I enter and then can exit. I mean, that's really how it tends to be. We're clearly entering and exiting experience as fast as I can snap my fingers and faster. But as far as I can tell, the only thing we're ever entering and exiting is reality. And so there is no entering or exiting. We're always that. And we're always this. And there isn't anything but this. So. The recognition of that, of course, can bring such, like I said, such profound 
gifts into one's life of greater ease and greater relaxation and less fear and more openness. So yes, those are byproducts of recognizing that. But if we fall into that, what I was really speaking to with this over-dramatization, it sets up this kind of opposed framework of, well, if we're not surrendering at all, if we're not dying to the ego, if we're not really giving it all up with full 100%, I'm going to stay awake and sustain this. And, you know, if we don't come at it with that sort of warrior-like spirit, somehow we're going to miss the boat. But meanwhile, we're in the boat. There is no missing the boat. We're in the boat. Again, it's also nuanced and paradoxical, but I'll give you an example of giving To be it. sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not and there's the question of like, which is the cart and which is the horse. For instance, I took quite a lot of drugs for a year or so before I learned to meditate. And it might be said, oh, well, you really have to give up that sort of thing, drugs, in order to get spiritual to, uh, in a serious way. Well, in my case, you know, when I learned to meditate, I totally lost the desire for drugs because I found that it was providing probably what I had been looking for with drugs, but in a very wholesome way. And, you know, mm. my life totally turned around. So I didn't feel like I had given up anything. I had just lost interest mm. in something because I had found something that interested me more. So I, I think the whole thing of, you know, renunciation, if you, if you force somebody to give something up but you don't provide something better, they're going to be unfulfilled and it's going to be a strain. Or if, if you impose that upon yourself, that you're, I'm giving up mm. relationships and I'm giving up money, I'm giving up, but you don't really have anything to fill the, <coughs> fill the void, you're not going to last very long or you're just not going to be very happy. But you, know, you can begin to fill the void, so to speak, without giving things up. And then certain things might drop off because they're no longer needed. They were artificially sure. providing something that you actually begun to genuinely yeah. have without the need for the crutch. For sure. It came out of some sense of lack that yeah. we imagined that we possessed and, yeah. and we discovered that we don't. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But again, I mean, in that example, the, the letting go, if you will, if you want to call it that, is a, simply a symptom of discovering that we don't have to hold on to a lot of the things we imagine we had to hold on to. Your point about the zeal, I think there's, again, it's always this both-end kind of thing. There's a place for zeal if you're, if you're feeling zealous. And I mean, even Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras said that those with the vehement intensity realize the most quickly. But I've seen so many people try to be that way and to strain and uh, end up cracking up or snapping back to the other extreme or something like that. And Rick, so, and Rick, all I'm really doing is I'm not saying that that's not a legitimate way to approach it. What I'm questioning is just what the supposed authority figure Patanjali said, that that's the way to do it. Essentially, that's what he's saying. We hear that and it comes from a supposed authority figure and we take these things on. And I'm just this voice, I've kind of in this way, as long as I can remember, yeah. being a little bit of a renegade, just in the sense of saying, you know, what, is it, what was the old bumper sticker? You know, a question of authority, right? right? Uh, don't question reality, question authority that tells you how reality is or yeah. should look or be. And it's like reality looks like it looks and it has its own intelligence and its own way. And this is, of course, I think also one of the problems with cookie cutter approaches to human growth and maturation or enlightenment, if you want to use that word. It's a problematic word. But, but just that we're so utterly unique, you know, in a very incredible way, you know, and it, it, it makes sense that we would find our own way in a very, in a way that is like no other one's way. I'm totally with you. I, I think it's important for you, you know, to, to make sure that what I'm saying isn't sort of misinterpreted as somehow 
if one feels that fire of of zeal and earnestness that they shouldn't just totally go for it in that kind of way because that's awesome if that's how you're inclined all i'm saying is that it may not be a requirement and maybe in some cases could function as a as something that perpetuates yeah. the sense that there's something wrong with me yeah yeah which is maybe one of the fundamental delusions which is a belief that there's something wrong and I think it's good to remember that every day is life, you know, and we don't want to pass over the present for some glorious future. Also, I mean, you remember that quote from the Buddha where he says, don't believe something because somebody else says, or even if, even if I say it, you have to go by your own judgment, you know, your own experience. I think that's good Yeah, do the advice. experiment. Check it out for yourself. Don't take anybody's word for it. And sadly, my observation of a great deal of Buddhism is that there's a lot of deference to authority in it. Yeah doesn't always take that particular piece of it to heart, but it is what it is. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up the word experiment, because I, I think that spiritual practice or spiritual, spiritual progress or whatever should ultimately be regarded as a scientific endeavor, a scientific mm -hmm. experiment. In science, you don't just believe something because some guy said it's true. You, you check it out for yourself. Yeah. We respect certain scientists, Newton and Einstein and so on, but that doesn't make them infallible. Maybe we've learned a lot since those guys lived. And so uh, I think it's, it's real healthy to take a, an experiential, experimental, rigorous approach to spiritual progress. And Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I just want to add one thing. You're, you're talking earlier about whether science could ever discover ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. I think that ultimate reality can be discovered, can be known, can be lived, but we have to look at what kind of scientific instrument we're going to use to discover it. And I would argue, if you, if you watch my talk from the Science and Non-Duality Conference, that the human nervous system is the ultimate scientific instrument. It's far more sophisticated mm. than the Large Hadron Collider or the Hubble Telescope or anything. And if we know how to use it, we can discover all sorts of things that contemporary science with its instruments hasn't even come close to discovering. Well, that same body-mind mechanism, for lack of a better word, is what's creating the scientific instruments anyway. It so, is, yeah. <laughs> so, clearly, that's where the juice is, is in that intelligence that, and of course, you know, the intelligence just seems to be here. You know, it's not something that we appear to have created somehow in the same way that we might have made a computer. I'll just riff on a few things that I picked up from Rain in a Monsoon. Uh, is that the title of uh -huh. it? Looking for Rain in a Monsoon? Searching for rain in a monsoon. Searching for rain in a monsoon. Let this not be a one-time discovery, but an ongoing, ever-deepening realization in your life. I'm just going to read a few things that you said in that book, and you just interrupt if you'd like to riff on those a little bit. But I'd like that one. Can I say one thing about yeah, please. that? Just, to me, it, it, it connects directly with all that we've been discussing around the, this quest for ultimacy about what this is. The notion of having sort of, I've found out what it is and, and kind of, foreclosing like we figured it out to me just it doesn't comport with my own experience and so it feels endless it feels bottomless it's infinite so it just makes intuitive sense and real living sense that the discovery of what's the nature of reality is unending and yeah. inexhaustible and anything else feels like a pretense somehow of yeah. a kind of an arrogance like oh yeah i've <laughs> i figured it out really come on I can't seem to adopt that point of view, so... <laughs> right. And I just said that, too, and if he said it, it must be right, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Spiritual authority. <laughs> right. Here's another one. 
what we call reality is really an interpretation the organism is rendering upon whatever is being experienced. Yeah, we've already kind of covered that one. Yeah. Right. And, and we're all filters. And like many things, if, if there's something valuable to that, which I, my sense of it is, it, it sums up a lot of what I say. There's no end to what the implications of that actually are for right. our lives because so much of our lives are driven and dictated by our definitions and our quick and dirty sort of sense of, yeah, I kind of know what's going on here. I got a handle on this because I've got language and language is amazing at giving me that quick and dirty kind of caricature of what things are, but it's just that. It's not really telling me what they actually are. So that one sentence, you know, you, I could live with that one inquiry and in a sense do in a wonderful sort of never-endingly entertaining way. I mean, there's no end to the entertainment of that exploration what's actually going on here, because yeah. it's way more than we think. Absolutely. Incredible string band. Whatever you think, it's more than that. Here's another one. By allowing the river of experience to move and flow as it does, a flow we're really powerless to stop anyway, we increasingly discover an ease and comfort that is naturally present and available within and as the flow of experiencing itself. And then a little bit later on, I think you said, life is naturally at rest. Yeah, it's not... It's not fighting with itself because it, it is itself. Yeah. So it can't even fight with, even when it's seemingly fighting with itself in apparent opposition to one of its expressions, it's really not because it's still that expression in that moment. And so, yeah, I mean, at, at a very human level, attempting to kind of alter the flow of experiences, it just doesn't work very well as a, as a, as a method for gaining well-being. It mm -hmm. tends to not work well at all. Even, even if we have been trying for generations to do that as human beings, to sort of manipulate our way into a better state of mind. But it turns out to not be necessary because the present state of mind is really amazing. You don't need to have another one. <laughs> even though you will have another one in the next instant. Yeah. <laughs> um, Guarantee. Yeah. There's a principle in physics called the law of least action, which is that in natural phenomena, such as acorn falling out of a tree or even throwing a ball or something like that, out of all the infinite number of courses or paths it could take, it naturally takes the most efficient one. So if we can sort of get ourselves functioning from that level at which nature itself functions, then I think our mm. life is going to take on that quality of optimum degree of effortlessness and least possible expenditure of energy. And that kind of relates to another point you made here, relax mind and body completely. That's easier said than done, I would say, because the mind and body are, you know, they get all keyed up and conditioned. You know, if you just, let's say you just sit and close your eyes and sit in a chair, you notice that, ooh, my mind is still cooking along here, my body feels kind of agitated. Maybe you can relax it to a certain extent, but to my mind, complete relaxation would be like a, you're going into samadhi and there's no mental activity and the, and the body is in a state of deep, deep mm -hmm. stillness. I would probably reword that because my understanding of when I say relax body-mind completely, and that's sort of an old kind of instruction anyway in certain traditions that we tend to think of contemplative practice as going from you know state A to state B. Mm -hmm. So state A is one of turmoil or tension or agitation, and I'm going to go to state B that's more relaxed. So you hear an instruction like that, it's like, I'm going to definitely get from where I presently am to something that's more relaxed. Wow, you even said completely. Well, it's definitely not completely. So it, it's a bit of a setup. And so I would say rather to see that in a sense, to make no effort to try to have experience be other than it is. 
because something like agitation, when left as it is, it changes that experience, you know, often yeah. dramatically. It's recognized to be part of the flow of existence itself. It's recognized, you begin to discover more of its transcendental, inconceivable nature. So it's not trying to get to relaxation, it's just leaving things as they are. Yeah, no, that's really good. And actually that was the next point of yours that I jotted mm -hmm. down here, which is you said, much of the internal suffering we experience stems from our efforts to try to escape what is arising. And, and I would actually mm -hmm. extend that to meditation as well. You know, there are many different ways to meditate, but to my mind, in my experience, if they involve trying to get your experience to be something other than it is at that moment, then you're you're struggling, you're straining, you're you're interjecting some effort, which is only going to impede the mm -hmm. purpose for which you sat down. Right, right. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it and it suddenly reinforces that the sort of you could say we could say a fundamental innocent misunderstanding that the fulfillment and satisfaction that we're searching for lays somewhere other than right here. Mm -hmm. I would this. recommend people to uh, listen to these. There's on Adya's website. There's some really nice free videos or audios you can download about the natural way of meditating that he describes. I think, I think it's uh, spot on. Embracing uncertainty. I think we've kind of touched upon that a fair amount, although we've both been expressing opinions with not total uncertainty here, but it's always good to take everything with a grain of salt. When Socrates said, you know, the only thing I know is that I don't know anything, that was apparently Socrates. So mm -hmm. that's pretty much about where I'm at these days. And At least uh, not anything definitive. I know all sorts of things. I have knowledge about this, that, and the other thing, but it's provisional. Yeah, provisional. <laughs> you don't want to be adamant partial. about it. It's, no, I mean... It's like, am I absolutely nice. sure? Well, yeah, because that knowledge is, is yet another map, of right. an interpretive map. And as we said, you know, the map's not the territory. It never can be. The territory always outstrips the map in terms of its complexity and richness and subtlety and dimensionality and... That just seems to be the way it is. You know, reality is, can't be put into a box. Yeah, I think it's a natural tendency to try to. Absolutely, it seems to be, we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't think we actually have to shut off that mechanism, by the way, and, nor I think can we, uh, that the interpretive map-making, model-building mechanism of consciousness, because A, I don't think we can, and B, it has its own utility. And C, we can recognize that the, it's like the map of New York and the city of New York. We don't have to throw the map away to recognize that the map doesn't capture what it's actually portraying. And so it, you don't have to discard the map. You can, you can keep using the maps to whatever extent uh, you find them useful, but recognize that they're just like barely touching on what's actually here, which is... Yeah, hold them loosely. Hold them very loosely. And that has a lot of uh, practical application in life, too, in terms of <laughs> to other people and sharing perspectives. And yeah. right, if we look about, we talked about the world and the crazy state that the world seems to be in. I mean, you can boil a lot of it down to people adopting rigid perspectives and being mm -hmm. unwilling to recognize the partial nature of those perspectives. Boy, isn't that right? true? Politics, religion, all those things. It's like, and exactly. even, even kind of search for reality. My I mean, map's I, better than your map. <laughs> yeah, really. I was chuckling earlier because uh, we were talking about God and the, the, and the immense intelligence governing everything, and I started to laugh because I was thinking about these sort of materialists who say that the world is, is the universe is this mechanistic thing and that there's no meaning or purpose to it and it's all just a random 
chance occurrence and all that. I think, God, how can they think that? It's just, and they're so adamant about it, you know, and so dismissive of anybody who tries to attribute any kind of intelligence to what's actually going on. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, yeah. e even if it was mechanistic in that sense, our actual experience of it is seems to be anything but that. Yeah. So who knows, you know? It's like even if consciousness is being produced by the brain, which I don't happen to think that's very likely, but let's say that somehow it's materialistic and you have the firing of neurons gives rise to qualia. I don't know how that would work, but let's say that it does. It doesn't take one thing away from the qualia. The qualia is continues to be astounding, inconceivable, you know, really for me, kind of blissful to feel the qualia because it's so rich and so without end. I missed the opportunity to tell this funny story, but there was a, an mm -hmm. episode of The Office where Steve Carell uh -huh. is, is driving and he's, fo he's following the GPS, right? And the GPS says, turn right, and there's a lake there. And the other guy in the car is saying, stop, stop. You know, he said, no, no, it's telling us to go this way. And he drives <laughs> his car right into the lake. So kind of a funny point about exactly. following maps. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And yeah, we do that uh, more often probably than we realize in maybe some ways. But. Maybe this is a point we can end on. Another thing uh -huh. I jotted down that you wrote, you said, in allowing ourselves to be totally vulnerable, we come to find a profound invulnerability. The discovery that experiences mm -hmm. cannot harm us because they are not separate from us. That's amazing, you know. That's amazing to feel that sense of phenomena like these difficult states of mind that we spoke about earlier that many people struggle with and we have this sense you know the framework is one of that's set up as the perceived and the perceiver and to actually look at that and see well, what's the actuality of it and the actuality of it of course is that um, you can't really find a clear dividing line between what we would think of as the one perceiving this phenomena and the phenomena being perceived and it's much more a sense of experiencing I think is the best way to put it and that this is these states to see them as expressions of life expressions of us as life rather than as things that we're sort of feeling at the mercy of or victimized by completely turns it all upside down in its head. Each other 
sense Out beyond ideas of right and wrong There is a field So thanks, John. This has really been a great conversation. I think we could go on and on. Very interesting guy to talk to. As always, I'll be creating a page on BatGap dedicated to this particular interview. And on that page, we'll have links to your website and to your books on Amazon and so on. So people can uh, you know, go there and follow the links if they want to find out more about you. I presume you, know, you mentioned you'd set, you were doing a Skype session with someone, so you do Skype sessions, maybe lead? Yeah, I, I find working individually, I think, not, I'm not going to say more potent, but I think it can just be very helpful, more clarifying, and it can sometimes happen more in group sort of settings. But mm -hmm. um, just to have that kind of individual ability to kind of inquire into person's experience and understanding and so yeah, I find them very rich. Good. Do you also yeah. do group things like do you have retreats or anything like that sometimes or give satsangs? You know I have some in the past and I haven't and I've been feeling uh, some pull to do more recently. It feels like uh, I don't know I feel like I've been cooking for a long time and 
feel myself having come into some way. I mean, I'm always kind of endeavoring to find the simplest, least esoteric, most accessible ways to communicate about this stuff because I sometimes have found, you know, teachings to be filled with lots of difficult to access jargon and language. So I don't feel like I've arrived at like, you know, the optimal way to communicate about what can't ultimately be spoken of very well, but I keep trying and uh, feel like a, I don't know, just a strong compulsion almost to try to, to do that. And but it feels to me like I just have a kind of sense of I actually have more to share than I have before. And so maybe there's a, a pull to, to start to teach more. So Great. we'll see. Yeah. That's so sense I do you have some kind of sign up thing on your website where people can yeah, be people notified can by email? And... Yeah, people can find me on and be in touch with me directly via email through the website. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Well, thanks. Thank you to those who've been listening or watching. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is an ongoing series. So go to batcap.com to check out all the previous ones, to sign up for the, to be notified by email of each new one as it's posted, to sign up for the audio podcast if you wish, to donate if you wish, and um, explore the website. There's some good stuff there. We'll be continuing to do this. So see you next time. Thanks, Rick. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, John. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, enjoyed it.